Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Sawcox. In this week's edition of Insight, we're checking to see if you're listening or whether we're just repeating the same stories. The business interruption's second test case is over until the third gets announced. There's more market consolidation, this time from Zurich. We spent so much time reviewing the ICA's SME affordability report, JT has nicknames for all of us. That's Mr. Trowbridge to you. And weather is on the agenda. I just like the way that rolls off the tongue. Weather is on the agenda. Hello, everyone. On the panel today are publisher Terry McMullen, managing editor John Deeks, and deputy editor Wendy Pugh. Hi, John. With all the weather analysis, are you a specialist in small talk? Well, if you get beyond weather and football or, or soccer, as we call it here, then I, I could be struggling. <laughs> Hello to you, Wendy. Good morning. What's at the end of your rainbow? Oh, lots of lots of pots of gold, if you put it that way. <laughs> and welcome, Terry. Hello. If we didn't call it La Nina and El Nino, what would you suggest? Uh, probably cold water in the north in the North Pacific and hot water in the North Pacific, depending on which time of the year it is. I guess we'll stick with uh, the original then. <laughs> That's not. <laughs> Not as inspired as I'd kind of hoped. No, sorry about that. So, Wendy, John Trowbridge has finalised his recommendations and report on SME affordability issues. And the ICA has launched a business advisory council in response. What did Mr Trowbridge conclude and what does this council hope to achieve? Well, um, Mr Trowbridge's report has uh, 13 recommendations. But in making those, he says there's been a very positive reaction to the ICA commissioning uh, the review and you know, enthusiasm for working more closely with the ICA. So, so one of these most significant recommendations is a proposal uh, involving a, a three-step process with customers, the ICA and insurers, where an issue would be um, investigated and, and, and findings provided back to everyone and hopefully they can sort of collectively find a, a, a solution sort of going ahead. So the ICA in response have said they're creating a, a new business advisory council, which will be chaired by outgoing NEBA CEO, Dallas Booth, and which will include um, representatives from the ICA and business organisations. But um, Trowbridge um, report says in, in cases where government involvement emerges as an essential component of the solution, ICA should insist insurance buyers to engage with government in, a, in an effort to find a solution, but, but, but that's definitely only seen as kind of a last resort. Uh, but, yeah, there's a lot of other recommendations in there, and he, he also calls for um, ICA to build closer relationships with state and territory governments so that they're better placed to um, have an early say on anything that might come up that's going to affect uh, insurance. Was one of them to um, to launch the Business Advisory Council, or has the ICA done that to deal with those 13 recommendations? Um, well, they don't. The, the, the Trowbridge report doesn't specifically say, you know, you need a Business Advisory Council, but it, it sets out these things, and, and ICA has formed this council basically in response to that. Terry, do you think the Business Advisory Council will be useful? Hey, Andrew, my only surprise is that we don't already have one. ICA used to have regular meetings with consumer representatives way back when, at a time when the, the consumer movement was on the rise and insurers weren't as caring and compassionate as they are now. Um, and I think that 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 sort of consultation actually led to a fair bit of the, the liberalisation that came through the, uh, the early codes of practice. Consultation groups are very successful, and I would have thought it was something that 
and running an industry group like insurance that, that you would automatically engage across the community. You only hope that, that if you do put together a business cons- consultation group, uh, that it'll be invited into the fold rather than just sitting outside. So the communication really is two-way and listen to. It can't be a passing fad. But as I say, this is, this is hardly a, a, a great new revolutionary idea. Why the hell we weren't doing it 10 years ago, I do not know. Well, moving on, as we reported yesterday, Zurich could be looking at selling off some Australian general insurance assets. John, what light can you shed on this story? Uh, well, not not a huge amount because Zurich won't talk to us about it. Um, this started with a Bloomberg article that stated Zurich is looking to offload some non-core general insurance assets in Australia. The story, sourced from anonymous people familiar with the matter, says the insurer is working with an advisor on the potential sale, which could raise a few hundred million dollars. Zurich would only say that it doesn't comment on rumour or market speculation, which is, of course, par for the course in these situations. Terry, you were saying before that you know more ex-CEOs from Zurich than uh, bakers have got roles. What are you hearing on this one? Well, I think that everything we've ever done on Zurich seems to be done in multiplicities. Um, Certainly we have become, we really should just have a, a fill in the blank for the the appointment of the next Zurich CEO, because I think we, in the last 30 years, we've been through, I can't work out if it's 16 or 18 uh, CEOs. The thing about Zurich, uh, the Zurich reports, as you look through them, you realise that right through from the the turn of the century that that Zurich has been dabbling with its, um, its portfolio in Australia. Uh, It deals with global businesses, so it has to have a presence in all the major markets, and that includes Australia. It's about number six in the local market in terms of size. It used to be number four. And if they decide they're no longer competitive in certain classes that are are non-core to their overall growth strategy, then there's every possibility, I guess, that the gnomes of Zurich could decide to sell those assets. They've been doing that for certainly for 20 years. Uh, And I'm not saying they will do that this time. just that they might. There's been quite a lot of comment on the fact that Justin Delaney, who's been there for, oh, probably two years, running the life and investments arm, will now run the whole Zurich operation. But but that's perfectly normal. They always have a country manager. And it looks like uh, the the GI, uh, the General Insurance Chief Underwriting Officer, Sean Williams, will actually be running the... um, the GI arm. Well, the sixth largest in the market is uh, quite the dabble. <laughs> it's whether they want to be sixth largest in the market. They might have decided that they ju- they just want to be a, a an operator of of large um, you know sort of corporate business here, or they might they may decide that they want to invest a whole lot more. Who could tell? Well, it wouldn't be an insurance news podcast if we didn't mention business interruption. Wendy, the second test case hearings are over. Can we move on yet? Not not yet. The eight days of uh, hearings in the second case finished in the federal court last Wednesday. So now we're waiting for a decision. Uh, everyone expects it will be appealed. And ICAS previously said any um, appeal would be heard by the full court of the federal court in November. 
So assuming that's the case, then it would be a matter of getting a decision back from there uh, before the courts uh, close up for the uh, Christmas and January break. Oh, well, John, there was some negative coverage in one of the newspapers about this, wasn't there? There was a bit, yes. Um, there was a column in the Financial Review which was critical of the amount of time taken to resolve this issue and compares our efforts here in Australia to the more speedy process in the UK. It notes that it's not often you have an appeal date or almost an appeal date set before a judge has even made a a decision on the original hearing. Uh, And it questions why we needed two separate test cases. While this scramble to the courts goes on and small businesses fall like topsy, After the latest lockdowns, the UK has dealt with its claims and is weeks away from paying most of them out, the column says. We have spoken before about the reputational impact of these court cases for the industry, win or lose. And articles like this show that it is a real concern. Following on, John, our analysis this week looks at the issue of landlord insurers trying to recoup claims costs from tenants. Why are consumer groups so worked up about this issue? So uh, Choice and West Justice have highlighted several case studies where there has been a fire in a rented property and the landlord then claims on their insurance. The insurer pays the claim, but then seeks to recover the cost from the tenant. If the tenant had been negligent, then you could say fair enough, but the consumer groups say that in the examples they've found, tenants have been unfairly targeted over accidental fires where there's no evidence of wrongdoing. They say it's incredibly stressful for people who are sometimes financially vulnerable to receive a letter demanding the payment of a significant sum. The consumer groups are now lobbying ASIC to do something about it, saying that insurers should be banned from pursuing renters for debts they don't owe. The ICA says it is carefully considering the issues and will continue to engage with consumer advocates. I think the other, be- the other thing we, we should bear in mind, of course, and, and the consumer groups don't mention this, is that insurance for renters does exist and it often includes a liability aspect. So it is another reminder for tenants to make sure they have their own cover in place. Well, Terry, I was going to ask you whether or not this passes the uh, fairness test, but I feel John's comment there about uh, renters insurance sort of covers that off. But uh, we'll throw you the hospital pass. What do you reckon on this? Well, no one likes recoveries, um, except maybe insurance companies. But there's there's no dispute that insurers should be able to recoup their losses from the party at fault uh, if that party doesn't have insurance cover. So it comes down to it's how you do it. I'm not an expert on landlord insurance, but I can only suggest the gentle folk who uh, work in the recovery sections of our insurance companies would be a lot nicer and willing to discuss reasonable terms than would, say, a credit agency. Look, this sort of thing, I suspect, affects people from lower socioeconomic groups. And the insurer's code of practice deals with a lot of this. We, we should be aware that many recoveries don't happen once the insurer realises the debtor has no money. But you have to talk on, to the debtor on a, on a personal and financial basis to be able to reach that sort of understanding. And it's an unpleasant experience, but it's the way it always has been and probably always will be. Well, finally, let's talk about the weather. John, there's a chance of another La Nina this year, isn't there? Unfortunately, yes, there is. As a result of cooling in the tropical Pacific, the chances of another La Nina arising. And the Bureau of Meteorology has declared a La Nina watch. 
that means there's now a 50% chance of a La Nina developing, which is about twice the normal likelihood. As we know, uh, or listeners to this podcast will know, uh, this weather phenomenon leads to an increased chance of flooding across some parts of Australia. And the last La Nina, which wasn't that long ago, went out with a bang in March as floods across New South Wales and Queensland left insurers facing hundreds of millions of dollars in claims. Do we worry too much about the weather, Terry? I mean, if it's not La Nina and floods, it's El Nino and bushfires. Mate, I live in Melbourne. Um, The only subject, particularly in lockdown, is the weather. Australia's a land of extremes. Some of the weather's extremely nice, and I hope there will be breaks in the clouds over summer, but certainly all I can see coming is more rain. But yes, we all do worry about the weather, and we should, particularly in this industry. As you say, you know, La Nina, floods. El Nino bushfires. There's still some terrible bushfires exposures in other parts of the continent, even if we are going to get more of the flood risk in the southeast. And there's always cyclone risks as, as well. So in the disaster season, anything's possible, and we should all talk about the weather. If you had to choose, would you rather La Nina or El Nino? Uh, I think El Nino because at, at least the weather's nice in summer. <laughs> That's the impartial analytics-led uh, insight that our listeners would look for. The sensible answer to that is is also El Nino because traditionally floods have cost more than fires. I don't know if that's still true, but that, that was the case. Thank you, John. That was kind of the answer I was expecting. <laughs> Slightly more analytical. Isn't that right, Wendy? That's right. (laughs) Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight Podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, Terry McMullen, John Deeks and Wendy Pugh. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, and all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.